Chapter 9 of Murder in the Sacristy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. Murder in the Sacristy by Daniel A. Lord, S.J. Chapter 9 The little parlor of Father Tunney's rectory seemed uncommonly bright. In a mild way, the priest and his two friends, the organist and the detective, were having a kind of celebration, for on the morrow St. Sergius Unite Catholic Church would hold its first public service, and the bishop himself had in his usual gracious fashion promised to attend in all his dignity. Because of the tragic events that had surrounded it, the church itself had become so famous that thousands who had never heard of the Greek Catholic rite had flocked to see it and help the young priest, who regarded this little parish as a stepping-stone to the days when he would carry the faith back into the sad, godless Soviet. So there was coffee on the table, and cheese, and crackers, and packs of cigarettes surrounded by ashes and forlorn-looking butts. And the men, completely relaxed, were threshing out the mystery that had come so close to wrecking the lives of two of them. "'From the start,' said Riley, "'it was perfectly clear to me, and to Carl here, too. He's the real detective on this case, that the crime could have been committed only by someone very close to you, Father Tierney, someone who had almost the run of the house.' He knew his way around the sacristy. He knew about that safe and the jewels. He was even in a position to steal your beretta and place it so that instant suspicion would fall on you. Now, if he wanted to do this sort of thing to a priest, quite aside from his wanting to steal the jewels, he must have either hated you, Father Tierney, personally, or hated the priesthood as an institution, or hated what you were planning to do in the priesthood. I could find no one who hated you personally, so I looked for a Russian communist, a man who, with the jewels, would benefit personally, or benefit a cause, and at the same time bring you to disgrace. Only, said Father Tyranny, none of us knew of such a man. No, but Karl here, and Radoff, and Anton, his real name is of course not Anton, I doubt that we'll ever know what it is, were the only three who had the run of your house. Though Anton faked ignorance of the jewels, it was entirely possible that he knew of them. That Beretta, instead of leading to you, led, I thought, away from you. And I confess that from the start, neither of us even slightly considered you as a possible killer. They all laughed at the absurdity of the idea, Father Tierney with a kind of wry relief. Riley indicated Carl. Carl here was with the dead man when Anton arrived in the sacristy. But where was Anton before then? He said he arrived in the church and went straight to the organ loft and sat down to wait. That was possible. But any man who had the run of your place could easily have done this. He could have arrived earlier than Carl, gone straight to the sacristy, begun to break the safe, and been caught by Radoff, murdered Radoff, left the church by the rear door, locked the door, thrown the key into the ash pit. When Carl, who was in the choir loft, heard strange sounds, and went to the sacristy, Anton could have returned to the choir loft. Carl laughed. Don't be too clever, Sergeant. We know that that's how Anton did it. But it was a long time before we suspected that that might have been the way. I confess that I began to suspect him only when I was in the church the night that I heard someone playing the organ. God gave me a remarkable memory for music. Play me a phrase, and I'll remember it as long as I live. Well, the night of the murder, Anton was in the choir loft when I was in the sacristy. People who have slight musical ability, and just a little knowledge of music, 
usually play the same few chords every time they sit down at a piano or any other keyboard. Anton knew a little music, just enough to play these chords. They stuck in my memory. When I went back to the church that night, the person in the choir loft played the same chords. For once my memory went dry. I knew the chords, but the events of that horrible murder had knocked the exact context of that music out of my mind. When I did remember, I had the key that opened all the doors. It was Anton who had played when I discovered the murder. It was Anton who played in an attempt to locate once more the exact spot in the organ where he had tossed the jewels. If some of the jewels hadn't hit that old pipe, we might never have found the gems, at least not until in some future generation that old organ was taken to the boneyard of departed musical instruments. But when on the night of the murder Anton heard that squeak, he knew he'd be able to locate the exact spot where the gems lay. That's why he played his familiar chords again in the dark church. Riley shook his head. One chump thing he overlooked. Once services were begun in the church, wouldn't the organ always squeak and give away the hiding place? Father Tierney laughed. That is where his luck might have held. And he knew it, too. We don't use an organ in the Greek rite. We sing without organ. And if he could have persuaded Carl here to have the choir practices at home... That would have been luck, the detective agreed. They sipped their coffee thoughtfully. Meantime, said Carl, let's give the sergeant credit for an important stroke. Riley looked thoughtful. That was luck, too. If Linsky hadn't decided to get himself involved in the case, I might never have thought of the barrier smoke shop, except in so far as it concerned Mrs. Goodspeed and the Jap. The priest held up his hand. Now there's something that doesn't fit in. How in thunder did she happen to have those jewels? She wasn't near the scene of the murder, and that cock-and-bull story about receiving them through the mails. Did you notice, said Riley, that the minute Senator Goodspeed mentioned his connection with the investigation of anti-American societies, I dropped his wife of the suspect. It was the most likely thing in the world to suppose that those he was attacking would want to strike back at him, and how better than through a gambling wife? but that's where Anton overreached himself. He was a fool there, as he was a fool in other instances. Somehow, in the rush of hiding the jewels in the organ, he found himself with that unset diamond and the ruby ring. He couldn't safely keep them, so he decided to make things hot for one of his enemies, and he did. He simply sent the ring and the stone through the mails to a desperate woman. She, another fool, saw in them a way of quietly paying her gambling debts. The Jap was a willing go-between, and the minute we spotted them, Senator Goodspeed was headed for scandal. Anton had struck at a man whose very existence was a menace to himself and his party. If he hadn't done that, Riley laughed. No, there was Lenski. Isn't it in Pinafore that Little Buttercup sings a song about things not always being what they seem? Well, the barrier smoke shop gets its money from the suckers, but back in the second room... The one that lies behind the records room we investigated. There's a spot from which communist propaganda pours out to the country. Two unions, the Army, the Great Lakes Naval Station, Fort Sheridan. Anton, according to his own story, used to drop in for little bets. He was on their books all right, but that personal business on which he used to slip away at intervals took him to this barrier smoke shop a lot oftener than would be necessary for an occasional two-dollar on the nose. We know the real res of the city. 
Kleinman is a red of the reddest tinge. O'Rafferty was run of Ireland for anti-Republican and anti-free state activities. The Valera doesn't like the Reds any better than do most of the real Democrats. Well, when I spotted that possible connection between Anton and the Reds there. Then Linsky calls up, announces that he can tell us what we want to know, and is bumped off. Bumped off, please remember, while Anton is out of the place and could, if the humor seized him, do the job. I spent quite a bit of time with Kleinman and O'Rafferty on and off for the next few days, for I couldn't see why Linsky, a Red, should want to turn in a Brother Red. Only I suddenly found out that Linsky didn't regard any of them as Brother Reds. After his death we picked up letters that he had received from Mexico. You know what that means? Trotsky, said Father Tierney. He knew his Russian complications. And if a Nazi used to hate a communist, hasn't this recent fine clinch of Hitler and Stalin got us all muddled up? A Trotskyite hates a Stalinite as a Chinaman hates a Jap. And Linsky was preparing to talk, to get Anton before Anton got him. But fortunately for him, Anton recognized Linsky's voice over the phone, and it was curtains for Linsky. What's another man or two out of the way, if it means that the great cause advances? So, said Father Tierney softly, you had your communist, your priest-hater, and he was right in the bosom of my parish. Neither of them liked to face what the priest was facing, treason and treachery and hatred masking his friendship. So Riley hurried on. That Linsky situation really focused my attention on Anton. That, and the fact that never did any of the tragic things happen at a time when he couldn't have been the doer. He could have been in the dark church that night. I was worried, though, broken Father Tierney, when I heard that your bun cap, Carl, had been the one found in the church that night you tracked down the man at the organ. Of course I was sure you weren't guilty, but would the public, and eventually a jury, believe that? Carl laughed. In all my life, he admitted, I was never more flabbergasted than when Schwartz held out the bun cap we were so sure was his, and announced emphatically that it was mine. My first reaction, said the sergeant, was the conviction that Schwartz was guilty. Either he had gotten hold of Carl's cap. But how could he have? interrupted Carl. Or, knowing Carl's number in the bund, continued Riley, he had prepared a new cap with that number, and left it behind in the choir loft to throw the suspicion on Carl. Carl spoke for a moment in silence. Almost more than anything else, he seemed to be musing aloud, the finding of that cap made me think of Anton. First of all, the guilty man was likely to think the same way twice. He had thought of a Beretta in the case of Father Tierney. He thought of a cap in my case. His mind ran to headpieces, so to speak. The sergeant says he wondered whether Schwartz might not have stolen my cap. Conceivably. But I thought how easy it would have been for Anton, going and coming as he did in my quarters, to pick it up and carry it off. Besides, whoever the guilty man was, he had access to Father Tierney's quarters. Otherwise he could not easily have got the Beretta. He had easy access to my quarters. Otherwise he could not easily have got the bun cap. And no one else fitted those circumstances but Anton. Yes, almost more than anything else, that bun cap flung my whole attention to Anton. And your aim, the sergeant nodded, was remarkably accurate. The priest raised a protest. But what about the night watches? Why in the world didn't he get the jewels when he was alone in the church? 
and have full suspicion pointed to him? The detective laughed. No, he went home and to bed. Then Carl here goes on duty and is consequently under the possibility of suspicion. And Carl is knocked out. And there's evidence carefully left behind to prove that Carl knocked himself out. That was the brick and hammer trick. It would have fooled me, said the priest. Fooled me to the hilt. Only. Right, said the detective. You're positively warm. But there be this to consider. Why should he work up an elaborate gag like that and then leave the evidence lying around for the detectives to pick up and pin right on him? All Carl had to do, if he had knocked himself out, was pick up the hammer and brick when he woke in the morning, hide them, and stagger out. A clear case of assault. But when we found that brick and hammer, I just knew he didn't knock himself out. Carl bowed in gratitude for this slight tribute to his brains. Yet, said the priest, you staged this elaborate accusation of Carl. Always in Anton's presence. And Carl escapes and leaves the detective tied up like a mummy. You tell him, Carl, said the detective. You remember that Riley told us after the case broke that Anton had said regretfully that he couldn't stay in town and face life if you or I were guilty. That gave him his getaway story. So he packed the jewels into the suitcase and checked it at the New York Central Station. It took the detectives only part of a morning to locate the suitcase. The initials P.A. and the lightness of the practically empty suitcase were a perfect giveaway. But I had to seem so guilty that Pierre would be thrown completely off guard. You never in your life saw a more cooperative victim than the detective in the hospital room. He even showed me how to gag him. And don't you realize that in any well-regulated hospital, people would have been in and out of that room a dozen times during the interval that I was gone, if we hadn't set the stage? Father Tierney sighed. But all the people dragged together like that. To make Anton think he was the only one not suspected, finished Riley. I kept him in my confidence, took him along as my Dr. Watson, made him feel I trusted him to the hilt. Everyone was a possible culprit but he. Then when Carl arrived with the bag that headquarters furnished him and flashed it on Anton, he was so completely taken off his feet that he confessed with every look, gesture, flush, stammer, protest. He was caught, and because it was at the very moment he was sure he'd escaped without a thought's being directed toward him, he was completely off balance, and he fell, physically and mentally. Father Tierney poured fresh coffee for them. And that, believe me, is the last time I play custodian for anyone's money or jewels. The church was meant to be poor. I'll win Russia back to Christ anyway. Carl sniffed indignantly. At that, the countess might have handed you a half a dozen stones, just out of gratitude. Why are rich people so often miserly? That, remarked Riley cynically, is probably how they got rich. But Father Tierney was shaking his head. Once is enough. I'm glad she didn't give me a thing. It's better that way. Let the banks take care of money and jewels. I'm custodian of the real treasures of the church. The poor, the weak, the ignorant. And at this final decisive speech of Father Tierney's, his guests rose to leave. They shook hands at the door of the rectory. Carl turned to gaze up at the sky, where the moon was fighting its way through Chicago's smoke and fog. Then he smiled at the priest. These harrowing days had drawn them very close together. "'You're not feeling you'd like to take a brief, brisk walk before you turn in, are you?' Carl asked. 
The priest shook his head. It's early to bed, for tomorrow I'm rising early. They both looked their polite but incurious interest. Yes, said the priest, and you might say a little prayer for that, too. I am paying my second visit to Anton in his cell. It was hard for the two others not to look the surprise they felt, but Father Tierney continued. Once on a time, I'm sure, he had faith and saw beyond the universe the Father who made the world out of love for men. The sergeant almost blustered. Not Anton. You're not wasting your time on Anton. Not, supplemented Carl, after the things he did to you. Father Tierney's eyes grew almost mystic. Why not? After all, Russia is so far away. Who knows whether I shall ever reach it? Maybe Anton is the whole reason why I am what I am. He moved his arms in the gesture that took in his cassock, the church, all that he had built up around himself. Russia can wait, but Anton can't. And if, before he mounts the scaffold, I can show him what the love and forgiveness of Christ really are. They looked at the priest with something like awe. Good night, my friends. He clasped their hands again. Then, in a strange, old-world phrase, Go with God, and may he keep you all your days in all your ways. He watched them as they walked silently down the street. Had they followed him into his little church, where that day the Eucharistic Christ had for the first time taken up his dwelling, their hope for Pierre Anton, strangely reborn, would have grown even stronger and more secure. The End End of chapter 9 Recording by Maria Therese End of Murder in the Sacristy by Daniel A. Lord, S.J.